You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Okay, after looking at education, it's natural to turn now to the question of church and state, and again to follow our same method of looking back into Aristotle, going through Aquinas, and then in this case we'll take on Maritain's great chapter on the church and state in his book Man in the State. I've already mentioned that Aristotle saw as part of the function of education was to call in the bards, those who would sing of the gods and heroes. We also find him making a number of references in books 7 and 8 to the arrangement of the city. This would be the best city, and that part of it would involve making sure that there are public areas, public tables, and places for there to be these common meetings and places for the stories of the gods and heroes to be told. For example, in Book 12, he says common tables should be placed in the temples, and the temple should be placed on a commanding site. He says, the site should be on an eminence, conspicuous for men to look up and see goodness enthroned and strong enough to command the adjacent quarters of the city, that there should be public squares. And then near the end of the chapter, he says, the directors of the state include priests as well as magistrates. We've already settled where the magistrates should have their common tables, and it's fitting that those of the priests should be associated with the temple buildings. Now, again, it's a complex question about how the Greek philosophers dealt with the popular religion. We know, of course, that Socrates met his death over the charge of impiety and corruption. And there's no doubt that the Greek philosophers took a certain intellectual distance from the popular stories about the gods. But it would certainly be a big mistake to interpret Socrates as a martyr for free speech, as popularly understood, as if there were a direct line from Socrates to Galileo to Larry Flint as if Socrates stood for nothing more than the freedom to indulge one's passion. No, Socrates shows himself to be a much more complex person who speaks frequently of the gods, who is a good citizen in his acts of piety, and so too with Aristotle. Aristotle at one point in the Metaphysics says that our ancestors have handed down the story which he says is true, that all of nature is surrounded by the divine. And there were later accretions, the popular stories of the Olympic gods, which Aristotle, I think, indicates he doesn't believe, but he thinks they do represent a deeper truth and that it's vital 
that those myths and stories be passed along. Now, obviously, for Aquinas, who's learned many things from Augustine, Augustine's City of God would be well worth reading on the question of civic religion. For on the one hand, Augustine does reject the ancient religion, but he does see the need for the city to have some devotion to something higher than its own temporal interest. Now, Aquinas, we must say a brief remark about the text that are given in our selection here about the treatment of non-belief or heresy and toleration in Aquinas, for the reason, in part, that these are obstacles to appreciating Thomas's and the medieval teaching, but I think also just to highlight the importance of the modern achievement, again, of Maritain and Simone, and the embracing of the principle of religious freedom. I think one must look at the strengths and weaknesses and conditions in which Thomas makes the argument. So let's just take a brief look at them, make a few remarks, and then look at the contemporary teaching of Maritain, which, as I said, I think is the basis for eventually of the achievement of Vatican II and Pope John Paul II. But Aquinas in the Summa, in the second part of the second part, question 10 is on unbelief in general. In the eighth article, he asks, ought unbelievers to be compelled to faith? Now, it is important to point out that he does say, yes, some ought to be compelled to the faith. But let's at least understood how they understood themselves on this matter. He does say, among unbelievers, those who have never received the faith, such as heathens and Jews, are by no means compelled to the faith in order that they may believe, because to believe depends upon the will. So Aquinas certainly has the principle that Locke lays out later for toleration, that belief requires an act of the will. It can't be compelled externally. He does say the state, though, may compel those practices which would be blasphemous or a hindrance to the practice of Christian faith. That certainly could not be brought over into contemporary liberal democracy. By the way, there's another article that's left out of this selection that's worth reading in which Thomas says that it's not right to baptize Jewish children. And again, he makes a similar argument that faith requires will or choice. And this is Thomas's appreciation of the principle of subsidiarity, that one must respect the parental authority over the child. And I think there's a profound respect for that bond. Nevertheless, he does say, those unbelievers who have accepted the faith and professed it, such as heretics and apostates, should be submitted even bodily, to bodily compulsion that they may fulfill what they have promised 
and hold what they at one time undertook. I think the important thing to see, again, to understand the reasoning here is that faith was seen as a matter of public profession and oath. Further, that faith was seen as part of political unity. This will be an important factor in Maritain's development of the doctrine of religious freedom. But Thomas saw it was a matter of living up to an oath or a profession that had once been made. Again, in Article 11, he does say that the magistrate can tolerate the rights of unbelievers, that it's important, again, that prudential statesmen know that greater evils may ensue when they try to promote the highest virtues or true religion by legal means. So again, I think there's another seed of the practice of religious toleration. What John Courtney Murray will later say about our First Amendment, that it's an article of peace. It's not a teaching on theology that there is no truth or that all religions are the same, but it's a practical matter for living at peace with others that one tolerate the beliefs and practices of non-believers and so on. Now the last argument to look at just briefly here is in question 11 on heresy, the third article, ought heretics to be tolerated? Aquinas says no. Now again remember a heretic would be that person who has professed the faith and then publicly leaves the faith. And he makes an argument that on their part, there is the sin whereby they deserve to be separated from the church by excommunication and also severed from the world by death. This is a very harsh statement, obviously. It is a graver matter to corrupt faith, which quickens the soul than to forge money. And other evildoers are forthwith condemned to death by the secular authority, much more reason is there for heretics not only to be excommunicated, but even put to death. Now he does go on to talk about the church showing mercy and not always taking up this harsh measure. And one could also go on to discuss matters of the Inquisition, and these are difficult matters to deal with. I would say on the question of the Inquisition, Maritain's book on the Church of Christ has a chapter at the end in which he reviews the Galileo case, the Inquisition generally, and ends with a very profound and stirring set of comments about Joan of Arc in which he explains that Joan of Arc signifies the end of the medieval era and the beginning of the modern era. And he says it is by a bitter irony, see, that the church had to learn the hard way that they put to death one of their best saints. And it was soon thereafter that Joan was seen and said to be a saint but Maritain gives the reasons why the Inquisition was conducted and also talks, though, about why it was a problem. And I think it's in a later book of his, The 
peasant of the Garun that he says the Vatican Council signified the decisive end of the era of Constantine. That is, once and for all, the church has now come to articulate its new position regarding church and state, which does affirm freedom of conscience and toleration of religion. And again, I think it is here that Paul VI said at the end of the Vatican Council that the church seeks nothing but freedom. It has no temporal ambitions. And that was indeed part of the tragedy of the Inquisition, is that it was a mixing of the temporal and spiritual powers. More often than not, the temporal powers using the spiritual power to enforce its own unity. But it also included the spiritual power's use of temporal power. It has been the long-standing tradition of the church that there are indeed two swords or two powers. Dante in the Purgatorio has also a stirring passage about the problem when these two powers get confused or don't live up to their own function. But let's turn to Maritan then and see what the decisive difference is, on what basis we can have some distant understanding of why the Inquisition occurred, and by the same token, why the new age of liberal democracy requires a new understanding of the relationship of the church and the state. Let's look now at Maritain's Man in the State, pages 148 and following. He talks about the general immutable principles, that there are basic principles which the church has always affirmed as guiding its view of the relation of church and state. The principles are as follows, that there is a superiority of the spiritual to the temporal order, that the spiritual should have priority over the temporal, that that is the proper ordering of values. When Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's, he set forever the principle by which church and state would be related. And of course, part of that teaching is that the things of God are superior to the things of Caesar. And it would be a great mistake to identify the divine cause with the temporal society without any qualification. In some ways, this was the great revolution that Jesus established that challenged the Roman and ancient political societies which did seek to identify God and gods with their particular state. On 152, Maritain says, from the advent of Christianity, religion has been taken out of the hands of the state. The terrestrial and national frameworks in which the spiritual was confined have been shattered. Its universality, together with its freedom, 
have been manifested in full bloom. So the idea here that there is an order superior to the state is essential to understanding Christianity's relationship to the state. Another principle involved here is that even though they are sharply distinct, they do need to cooperate. So this principle is that there must be a necessary cooperation between the church and the state. Now the question becomes how to apply these principles. I should mention the first one and then we can look at the three of these together. The first principle is, Maritain says, the freedom of the church to teach and preach and worship. It's the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of the word of God. So this basic freedom of the church the superiority of the things of God or the spiritual over the political. And the third is the need for a necessary cooperation between the two. Now Maritain says how these were applied in medieval Christendom and then through what he calls the Baroque civilization depended upon a certain notion of what he calls the sacral order or the sacred order that in the medieval time the temporal was seen as having a much more instrumental role in serving spiritual purposes part of the development of the modern age is that it's not a sacral but a secular age but the secular properly understood is not a term to condemn, but a positive value. Secular just means temporal, having to do with temporal affairs. So if the medieval age was a sacral age, that is an age which saw the capacity to make temporal affairs ultimately serve the spiritual good. Secondly, that spiritual unity was seen as the basis for temporal unity. That is, prior to the Reformation, it was just a matter of course in the development of history that the identity of Europe was that of Christendom and that the unity of the political society required unity of faith. So the new age, the modern world, has done two things, and again, both of which have a positive value, but can be misinterpreted or distorted. It sees a further differentiation between the temporal and the spiritual. We could even use the term the full autonomy of the temporal order from the spiritual. Now, of course, autonomy here must be properly understood. Gaudium et Spes does this very well, explaining the true and the false meaning of autonomy. Properly understood, autonomy means that secular and temporal affairs have their own stability. They have their own integrity. They follow their own laws of economics, psychology, sociology, and that these are part of God's creation, that there is an ontological stability, an intelligibility 
to temporal affairs, and that these should be understood and affirmed in their integrity for what they are. So Catholics ought to study economics and sociology and psychology insofar as these can help us better understand the natural principles of the world. The false meaning of autonomy, Vatican II says, and again this follows Maritain's great achievement, is what Maritain calls anthropocentric humanism. That would be the autonomy which denies that the world and the intelligibility and integrity of the world derive from God and ultimately are destined to a relationship to God. That is, we could think of Thomas's whole design for the Summa, the exitus and reditus, that things come forth from God and return to God. That is an essential principle of theology and through philosophical analysis, we can also see the role of God in the developed creation of the world and its ultimate destiny. So to get back on track here, the modern age in differentiating and seeking a greater autonomy of the secular matters is a positive development. And of course, the second development is the unity of the state is no longer premised upon religious unity. Certainly the Reformation has forever changed the character of states in the West, but I think one can also see a positive development in that we can see the temporal affairs have their own particular order and justice that we can affirm. Now, just briefly, Maritain says part of the tragedy of the Baroque era was after the Renaissance and Reformation, although great cultural achievements were made in that Baroque era, politically it was still a disaster. It led both Protestants and Catholic monarchs to claim an absolutism, to seek greater manipulation of the faith, to further mix the political and the spiritual in ways that were ultimately to the detriment of both church and state. So what is the new role for religion, church, in the modern state? Briefly, Maritain's argument here is it's through the unity of the person that church and state must cooperate. That is, we can still affirm those three essential principles, that the church must have the freedom to preach the gospel. And that is certainly made possible by regimes which do seek to protect freedom, freedom of association, free expression of religion, and so on. So that's why Paul VI again says, the church now seeks one thing, and that is freedom. freedom to preach freedom to live its own life. But a second point is the superiority of the spiritual to the temporal. And Maritain on 164 has a very important passage here in which he says a superior agent is not confined or shut up within itself. It radiates 
It stimulates the inner forces and energies of other agents, even autonomous in their own peculiar spheres, whose place is less high in the scale of being. Superiority implies a penetrating and vivifying influence. So on this account, it's by the very superiority of the church that its influence on temporal affairs will no longer be primarily, if at all, through direct legislation, but through its moral and spiritual influence, as he says, penetrating and vivifying the citizen from within, through education, through its own internal life. There will be the influence that I think we find in the teachings of Vatican II, and Maritain uses this phrase on page 160, it should be an age of sanctification of secular life. That it's now up to individual citizens. It's up to families. It's up to Christians and Catholics in business and in all walks of life to see that the greatest tragedy of our day will be to separate faith and life. But the great challenge is to unify in their own person their faith and their life. And by using the freedom that they have as citizens, using their free initiative as free men and women to bring to bear the great teaching of the church, the great life of the Spirit, which is theirs by baptism, into the highways and byways, as Maritain says in the Peasant of the Garun, to be contemplatives at the crossroads, to be able to have the influence of the Spirit, the influence of Catholic doctrine through their own excellence as secular citizens. That is, it's very Thomistic, ultimately, of the relation of nature and grace. That is, grace does not destroy nature, but builds upon nature and perfects nature from within. So the new ideal that Maritain has articulated here in 1950, which I think has come into the teaching of Vatican II and John Paul II, is to see that there are ways we must find to cooperate. He mentions the public acknowledgement of the existence of God, the great tragedy if the public square will become stripped of any reference to God, that this will be to the detriment of the public order, to hearken back to Brownson's fear of the democratic principle, he also talks about specific forms of mutual cooperation. To end here, the highlight of cooperation should certainly be in education, where the church can bring the great teaching of liberal arts in the training of free men, and also, he says, through its social action, through its love of the poor, the love of responding to the distressing disguise of Christ in the poor, which Mother Teresa has shown the world so well, that he said that at the end of the day, 
The cause of freedom and the cause of the church are one in the defense of man. And I think that is John Paul's motto, that the cause of freedom and the cause of church are one in the defense of man. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.